As a reminder, we're, as we go through Romans, we're trying to memorize the passage each week, so I'll try to recite it. And each week, these ambitious chunks coincide with ambitious chunks of responsibility during the week, which means that I have lots of excuses why I'll mess up here. We're reciting from the NIV 84, and we are giving attention to what Martin Luther said is a book that we need to learn by heart, word for word. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you condemn yourself. For you yourself do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Yet when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give each one according to what he has done. To those who by doing good, persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be anger and wrath. There will be trouble and distress for everyone who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will be judged apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who will be righteous in God's sight. It is those who obey the law who will be declared by nature in God's sight. Indeed, the Gentiles, when they by nature do things required by the law but do not have the law, they are a law to themselves. Since they prove that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, now with their thoughts accusing and now even defending them. This will take place on the day when when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holden Caulfield, Lord, would have called us phonies, and we know it, but sometimes we take comfort in offloading our phoniness to, to others in judgment because their phoniness seems so much more apparent. There are things about us that are not right, things within us that are not well. But we're coming to the jealous God, and we're appealing to you on the basis of your profound jealousy, your eagerness, your 
unmatched and tireless affection. Compel us as your inheritance. Fight for us today. Fight for our attention. Compel us and woo us and awaken us where we've fallen asleep. We are not the authors of our best hope, but we know you are. And so we're asking, will you write something good in us? Let this listening be for our souls like food is for our bellies. Gladdening and nutritious, resourceful and enlivening. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you now in all the ways that we come here this morning, in our pain, in our shame, in our resentments, in our frustrations and our shaking fist attitudes towards the unfairnesses around us and then the joys that we experience because of how good things are going at the moment. We're asking you to come. Don't let this be a waste of time. It's me preaching here, Lord. They need help. Send your spirit. Make us alive. Amen. Back in October of 2016, I wrote these words in my weekly essay at the Chattanooga and an essay called The Lure of Political Outrage. It was a remarkable essay if I alone could appraise it and size it up. But the opening line was, was a, you know, a perfect one. Most of my ad for Donald. And this opening line was, praise God for Donald Trump. I thought it would be a calculated line that would do two things. It would trick some people, well, it would trick all people, but it would anger some really much, and it would delight some to no end. But then I proceeded to say, praise God for Donald Trump, for were it not for him, we might have to face some embarrassing nastinesses about ourselves. But as it is, he has donated us a living embodiment of the daily news each blood and gut story worse than the day before. Because of him, we never, ever have to look at ourselves again. And then I proceeded to talk about the lure of watching him and, and Hillary and their combined nastiness that seemed to leech the nastiness out of each other. And we could just watch it all on Fox News or MSNBC. We could listen to Robert Siegel talk about it, or we could read about it on Facebook posts. And we could wag our fingers and wring our hands and just shake our disgusted faces at that short-fingered Bulgarian or that awful woman. Oh, and it felt so good, didn't it? Didn't it feel so good to be outraged at their awfulness? Well, you can't admit it because you're polite people. The Apostle Paul in this Romans chapter 2, which is a difficult passage, I is talking, I think, about that dynamic. He's talking to people who have been watching Fox News, and they've been listening to the reports about these, these entitled millennial snowflakes, and they're listening to the rampant sexual deviance on campus and they're getting madder and madder and their carotid arteries are bulging and their blood pressure is boiling and they're posting on Facebook and they are reading other people who think exactly what they think and they're getting madder and madder and madder and it feels kind of good. It's kind of comforting 
because they're in a little cocoon of safety. Like, look how awful those those 20-somethings are. Useless. They don't have to figure with, fiddle with their own uselessness. Look how sexually deviant they are. They don't have to deal with their own sexual weirdness. Look at how arrogant and self-seeking they are. They don't have to think about their own. He's talking to us. People, foodies gathered. The name of some restaurant I can't pronounce. Having like a IPA made entirely of kale and quinoa. <laughs> and they're just saying, can you believe my racist grandpa? He's like, he's got one of them Donald Trump hats. And they are just going to town feeling so snug and safe. At their Fox News watching camp. Oh, it feels so good, doesn't it? To feel outraged at someone. The apostle in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 that we looked at last week has said, and some of the most hallmarky kind of ways, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth of their wickedness. He's talking about denouncing all the idolatries of the Gentile world, the, a brief history and 14 verses of how humans, when they turn away from God, degrade each other sexually. They become like animals following their own instincts, obeying their own desires, trying to scrub God out of the picture. They start to invent ways of doing evil, and they not only do that, but they give them airtime, proof of it. They know better than it, but they applaud people and give them airtime when they flout God's authority. And the apostle knows that there is a theoretical religious person listening to him talk about the Gentiles. For although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Even their women exchanged unnatural, uh, exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And their men likewise abandoned relations with women. For men, they committed indecent acts to one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And these Jewish, these religious, these moral folks are listening. They're just watching Fox News. They're getting madder and they're getting madder. And Sean Hannity's going, you listen to me, get going, get madder. This is what our point is. Anger is the point. And he's going and going and going. And Paul says, um, you, therefore, at your foodie establishment or at your couch, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you condemn yourself. Praise God for Donald Trump. Same things. He's tricked them. Just like me saying, praise God for Donald Trump. Because God, Donald Trump makes it so that we don't have to think about our own nastiness because he has cartoonish nastiness for us. As do all kinds of politicians. As do all kinds of stories you read on Yahoo News or on your Facebook feed. And they're so comforting. And Paul wants to say, stop that. He goes into literally a diatribe which is a rhetorical device. He, he says, you, therefore, singular you. He's talking to a theoretical person. 
He's having a conversation with a theoretical person, not somebody at the church in Rome, a theoretical person so that the people listening, and now present-day people listening, can understand what he's up to. And the first thing he's saying is, don't you think that because you don't do these same exact things, because you don't approve of these same exact things, that you are somehow exonerated. In fact, you actually do commit the same kinds of crimes. Maybe they present in different ways. You don't think you're arrogant? You don't think you gossip? You think you always obey your parents? You think you're faithful and not faithless, heartful, not heartless? You think that you are not created things, idolatries, making your life ordered around created things? From the appearance of your kitchen to sports? To the work that you do? Or the worst kind of idolatry, making yourself God and standing in judgment of everybody else? You think that's not idolatry like the Gentiles? As you condemn them, you're condemning yourself, he's saying. See, one of the things that he's concerned to do is he's trying to set up a situation for people then, like now, to imagine that knowing certain things is what saves them. To imagine that if you know the talking points about an issue, that you therefore understand and are righteous with regard to that issue. With these Jews, he's concerned, he's concerned that they are going to say, we are circumcised. We are the recipients of the law of God. We had God reveal himself to our daddy, O Moses. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in compassion. Giving out love, forgiving We have the law of God, judging the guilty. We have the law of God. We have the promises of God. We are the elect. We have heard God speak. And so Paul says, okay, if you think that provides you some kind of survivor immunity, you're not going to get kicked off the islands now? Because you have heard the Ten Commandments? Because you know the law of God? Because you're a teacher and leader of the blind? You really think that makes you safe? That's why he says here, it's not those who hear the law of God who will be righteous. It's those who keep, obey, perform, who do the law of God who will be declared righteous in his sight. He's worried about A group of people who are standing in judgment of others and therefore not looking at themselves. Who are feeling a false sense of security before God because they know the right things. He's talking, therefore, to people like us today who might say, you're under a certain age, you might be aware of the expression being woke. Are you woke? You woke. I'm not even cool enough to say the word. I might get trapdoored right? Being woke, said out loud. Now, being woke started as one thing, but now being woke is like a secular version of saying, I'm in covenant with God. It's a secular version of saying, uh, 
I, I know things. I understand things. I understand. I'm, I'm woke about white privilege. I understand. You, you don't, my, my grandpa, he doesn't, he doesn't get it. He's clueless, but I'm woke. It's a badge that says I'm on the inside. I know what's up. And therefore, we're good. The Jews said the same thing. We know God's law. We're good. And Paul is saying, ah, you don't get saved by what you know. You don't get saved by that. And so he wants to point out to these religious, moral people where they might be erring. And he essentially says to them, you know, you don't have any excuse for yourselves, even though you might take some comfort in judging others. He said about the Gentiles that even though you may talk to someone who hates the exclusivity of Christianity and who has suddenly become over heard about the first time in their life with the eternal destiny of people they've never thought of or heard about, what? You mean outside of Christ you can't be saved? What about the native who never heard? Because people are always concerned about that, except when they're not talking about it. And Paul says, well, actually, all a human has to do is walk outside and witness with eyes that are magnificent and breathe with lungs that are filled with oxygen he didn't put there and hear the the chatter even of the strong silent type lookout mountain and he or she has been introduced to something about God so that they are without excuse God is clear to everybody but as psychologists might say people repress knowledge and then they get addicted to things. They attach and they're repression. We can't handle the truth. Jack Nicholson told us. And Paul says it's the same, but he says, look here, Jews, you're worse. Because it's not just that you ignored the book of nature, what theologians call general revelation, where the heavens are declaring the glory of God. There is not a place on the planet where trees and fishes and glimmering seas are not speaking eloquently about the magnificences of God. God has actually given you, think about how you get rid of your shudder. God has opened his mouth specifically to talk about how you get rid of your sin and who the true God is. He's revealed himself to you and you've ignored him. You've heard him, but you haven't done what he said. You've listened, but you've not listened like a parent said, are you listening to me, daughter, son? What they mean is, why are you not doing what I said? And so Paul says, you've got no excuse either. They've got no excuse. You've got no excuse. You've been given the laws and words of God, and you've disobeyed them. You've not listened to them. You've not responded. So there's no excuse, but he would say there is a kind provision. That's just the main point today. There's not going to be 50 of them. That's it. That's the main point. There's no excuse for people, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're really religious or not religious at all. There is no excuse for you before God. But there is a kind provision that you shouldn't ignore. There's no excuse, but there's a kind provision that you shouldn't ignore. And that's what the apostle is trying to set up here. C.S. Lewis in one place says, Sometimes I find that when I'm asking God to forgive me, 
I'm really asking God to excuse me. Now think about times when you say, excuse me, excuse me, and they excuse me, you burp, and you say, excuse me. But if you're a parent and someone says, excuse me, and they just burp, you're like, well, could you really not help it? It seems to me that you nurtured that burp. It seems to me that you're awfully proud of it. Seems to me like that was an intentional expulsion of gas from your diaphragm. See, that's the thing about excusing versus forgiving. When we say to God, hey, I couldn't help it. You know what I'm like. I couldn't help it. You know what kind of family I came from. You couldn't, I couldn't help it. You know. Of course I yelled at the kids. Do you know what they're like? Of course I yelled at my boss and I gossip about him mercilessly, but have you ever met her? Of course I don't give away my money and I, and, and I hate people, but have you met people? <laughs> when you ask God to excuse you, you're saying, I couldn't really help it. It's not my fault. I can't be held responsible. But when you ask for forgiveness, you say, oh, here. And it's hard to meet eyes sometimes because you're admitting there are actually inexcusable parts. It wasn't just that there are parts like where I was, it wasn't just that I was mean accidentally. Like I think actually I realized I was being mean on purpose because it just, for that moment, felt like it'd be really good to make you feel really bad. I thought that would make me feel better about me. So I'm healthy and righteous, and I, I understand. See, when you ask for forgiveness, you're owning up to actual things that are inexcusable, and you're saying, here, will you take these away? And Paul says, when we're just passing judgment on people, who are doing wicked things, it's easy to be blind to all the inexcusable things about us. When we are triangulating at the water cooler or in the bleachers about the lady down the road or about our coach or about our boss or about our spouse, when we are talking about someone else at church, it feels so good sometimes to be bonding over our mutual cozy contempt for the other person. And Paul says that's dangerous because you're guilty of the same thing you're accusing them of. Isn't just answer because he wants you to always come back to this thought your life isn't just answerable to people. It doesn't really matter in the end how well people thought of you. Or how good you were able to make them think you were. How showered you seemed. How scheduled and ordered you were. What was going to matter is what kind of praise from God will you get? Or not praise? And that's pretty inconvenient. Because we'd rather watch Jimmy Fallon lip sync things. Or James Corden be silly in a car with the red hot chili peppers. That is more pleasant than to think about judgment from God. The wrath of God. But Paul, annoyingly, 
keeps bringing it up. But as he brings it up, he says, you know, when you're standing in judgment, not looking at yourself, condemning the other, you're showing contempt for a kind provision from God, the riches of his kindness, patience, and tolerance. Not realizing it's actually his kindness that leads you to repentance. He says, because of your wrath. In your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He would agree with the rabbi who was once walking with his disciples. And he was talking to them about repentance. When should we repent? They asked him. When should a person repent? And he said a person should repent on the last day of their lives. Make sure before the judgment they are clean. And they said, but Rabbi, how do we know what the last day of our lives is? He says, I guess you better treat today like your last. The scriptures want to acknowledge, the apostle wants to acknowledge that repentance, this whole idea of coming to your senses suddenly, of recognizing like the Younger brother who had squandered his father's hard-earned money. Was living with pigs who were not organic. Eating, they were probably feeding them corn. And he came to himself. He came to his senses. Paul's trying to get them to come to your senses. There's a provision. You come to your senses. That's the kindness of God. There is a provision. There is a provision called the kindness of God where he will treat you way better than you deserve as you come to yourself and realize, oh, there are inexcusable things about me. But he says, if you, if you stay unrepentant and if you stay stubborn, which there are different ways of doing that. You know, one of the ways you can be unrepentant and stubborn is you can just wink at sin. That's our cultural answer to it at the moment. As it pertains to sexual sin, for instance, you just, you just rename it all. Everything goes. Your, your biological animals, monogamy, huh, it's a patriarchal institution meant to destroy women. Monogamy is not something that was ever intended. We're made to be, well, that's what people say. So what they do is they take what God would say is a sin, and they just rename it. They put lipstick on a pig. And in that way, they're being stubborn and unrepentant, and they're saying, oh, there isn't really anything for God to judge because there isn't really any sin. People do whatever they want. You're led by your own nose or by your own desires because you're an animal. That's it. Or you can just turn a cold shoulder. I'm not going to think about it. Look how awful everybody is. I'm not going to think about God. I don't want to think about God. You can turn a cold shoulder. You can wink at sin. But Paul says that those strategies are merely a way of making deposits into a retirement account of wrath that's going to come against you from God. This should be a little bit frightening. 
Like, what if your life is answerable to God? Not just to how cool the filter you used on your Instagram picture while you were eating an omelet. But like, what if the way you act and the things you think and the things you do or don't do, what if God's going to hold you account for those? What if? And so Paul keeps saying, he keeps going, and again, he's doing this principial thing. He's making an argument. God will give to each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in seeking good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. To those who are self-seeking, reject the truth, follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. Now, is Paul having like a dementia moment here? Does somebody need to, like in Back to the Future, say, hello, McFly, and remind the Apostle Paul that he's the Apostle Paul? And that Martin Luther and John Calvin and even back before them, Augustine and Martin Bucer and Ulrich Zwingli and, you know, other ways of pronouncing things that don't make sense. These guys discovered from the Apostle Paul that justification by faith, that no one could be good enough before God, they would be justified by faith and faith alone. And so here Paul is saying it's not by hearing the word of God, it's by doing the word of God that you'll be declared righteous. If you do good, you'll get eternal life. If you do bad, wrath and anger. forgotten what he teaches in one chapter later? Well, I don't think so. I think he's helping us understand the principle that if this were possible, this would be the case. Yes, it's possible that those who, if they were doing good, if they were seeking glory, honor, and immortality, they would secure eternal life. If they were constantly doing good, they would secure eternal life. But who is doing in the next chapter? the need for repentance in the next chapter he's going to remind us that the law was actually put in place the law that no one can keep he'll say therefore no one can be declared righteous in God's sight by obeying the law but the law is what makes us conscious of sin the law is a bright glaring fluorescent light at the convenience store that makes it feel like it's three in the morning and makes every single blemish that has ever happened on your skin, presently or in the past, show up vividly. That's what the law is. It's a spotlight that says, you've got no hope before God. You better seek refuge somewhere else. That's what Paul's trying to get him to do. Realize there's no excuse for your life. You have no excuse before God. You know enough to be good enough, but you can't do it. But there's a kind provision that you shouldn't ignore called the kindness of God because he is going to tell us. And that's what's hard about preaching this chapter. It's like preaching a two-minute section of a two-hour movie. But he's going to tell us that there is a way to get righteous before God. And it's by the one who did seek good, who did seek glory, honor, and immortality, who only did good, who never self-sought. This Lord Jesus Christ. That righteousness comes to all who believe. In this Lord Jesus Christ. You may know, to close with this, we may know the story, the 
the movie back in the 90s of Goodwill Hunting. Robin Williams plays a psychologist with a beard that covers his eyes. Matt Damon plays Will Hunting's brilliant savant-like dude, encyclopedic knowledge of all things, and had a rough upbringing. And in one scene, he is there with him together. He's been court-appointed to meet with this psychologist because his life is troubled. Robin Williams has a file on him that's thick. What's that, he says. It's your file. It's what I've got to turn to the judge. He says, you're not going to fail me, are you? And as they continue to talk, Robin Williams, in this really profound scene that you know about probably if you've seen it, he says, you know, this, this file is not you. All this stuff, it was set in Boston, so no one says, actually ever says stuff. It's illegal. I know we got some Boston people here today. You'll agree. You'll agree. And he says this is to him. But this stuff isn't you. And he says, this is not your fault. And that day we start to feel nervous. They've been talking about abuse. They've been talking about this life that he had where he got beat up by his dad. Wrenches and belts and offings. And he says to him, it's not your fault. The way your life has turned out. He walks toward him. Will, it's not your fault. And he has it's not your fault. He says, don't mess with me again. He didn't actually say mess with me because that's illegal too. It's not your fault. What are you doing to me? Stop it. It's not your fault. He keeps walking toward him and he keeps getting more adamant. He goes, I know, I know. And he says, no, you don't. It's not your fault. And then Will starts to fall apart. This kindness. The man who knew him coming toward him. It's not your fault. And he falls apart in his arms and he hugs this woolly mammoth Robin Williams and he starts to weep and as he weeps he says I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And to it could very much be though what happened to him is not his fault. How he's responded to it could very much be said to be his fault. And what's so amazing about what the apostle's trying to get you to see is that there is nothing excusable. God doesn't look at you and the ways that you act and merely say, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. But even better, he walks towards you and says, even though it's all your fault, here I come. Even the parts that are all your fault, here I come. Even if it is your fault, so that you can throw your arms around him like that prodigal son who while he was still a long ways off his father ran to greet him and threw his arms around him it's all your fault and yet that kindness that kindness and the sacrifice of Christ eats up all the faults and lets you safely say I'm so sorry I'm so sorry. And know that whatever you've offered, God's still holding you tight.
This is why Paul says this is good news for everybody, religious or irreligious. Because you don't have to hide from this available. You can go from the God who's moving towards you and saying, there's kindness available. Just keep coming. Keep turning. Keep offering up the inexcusable parts to me. And I will take it all away and hold you close all the while. Amen.